Good morning. So good to be home. Uh, it would have been uh, just as good to stay another week or just as good to uh, come home a week earlier. It's all good, you know. It's uh, good there. It's good here. But it's great to be here with you this morning, and I have missed you. I am so grateful for everybody who uh, kind of picked up the slack, if there was any, and uh, thank, thankful to Stephen, Jared, and Corey for, for speaking. This morning we're back in the series on James. It's been a bit of a hiatus, not something that I would have uh, wished, but uh, in many respects uh, unavoidable due to uh, shoulder surgery and then uh, a vacation. But faith works. That's what we've uh, titled this series of messages because I think Indeed, that's what James is emphasizing and reminding us. But of course, when we say faith works, we're not talking about some abstract principle. We're talking about our trust and faith in God. And so faith works because God is good. God is powerful. God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. God is intimately involved and interested in our lives and what our lives become, and that's evidenced by Jesus Christ. So that's all in the background. And when I say faith works, I just want to remind us that uh, faith works because it pays off. It's profitable because we're putting our faith in the Lord. And that means we're walking with him, we're depending on him, we're reliant upon him. And he's influencing our life daily, our decisions, our thinking, our actions and reactions. But also, faith works in the sense of perspiration. <laughs> it works because there is a payoff when we walk with God, but also faith works because uh, there's a bit of perspiration involved in faith. We have to exercise our faith, our trust, and we have to, I mean, look, I don't have to make a big case here. You know that sometimes we just, we, we handle a lot of stuff each and every day on our own, in our own strength. We don't even give a thought to really inviting God into the midst of that and kind of directing our thinking, our actions, and reactions. So the ultimate challenge is really one challenge for us, and that is, uh, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust God? And that's the basis of the tests, I think, that uh, have a lot to do with what we read in James. Such tests are inevitable, and I want to tiptoe through chapter 1 up to verse 18 and refresh us and encourage us. There is so much encouragement here for us, and if you've come today and you've come with a heavy heart because of some challenge, some difficulty, some frustration, something that angers you or causes you fear, 
something that causes you to be anxious about tomorrow and it's even hard to hear a little bit because you stray and your thoughts wander to the things that are pressing on you, well, this is uh, a refresher for you and for me. In many respects, I think, wow, I don't, I'm not telling you anything new. But in J James' words, he's reminding us of some very precious things that are so vital and important to our daily walk with God. But these tests that he refers to, trials, they're inevitable. They're as diverse as all of the elements of life itself. And just as you and I are different, so the, what we regard as tests or challenges or hurdles, those are going to be different for each and every one of us. But one thing is common. God is going to use these tests, James says, these trials to strengthen our trust, our faith in him. He's going to build it just like exercising muscles or developing a skill. Our life of faith, he says in verses 2, 3, and 4, is going to make us mature, perfect, complete. But that comes through the strengthening of our trust in God, our belief in him our dependence on him, our reliance upon him, and this strong confidence that is a part of faith that God is on our side. God is not our enemy. In fact, he seems to take up in verses, starting in verse 5, uh, questions that we might raise as he talks about the challenges of life, these uh, tests of faith that God uses to strengthen us and build our trust in him. For example, well, actually, right from the get-go in verses 2 through 4, it seems like there's a, a presumed question, you know, this shouldn't be happening to me. This shouldn't be happening to me. And James says, au contraire, rejoice. This is an occasion for a really bright, positive outlook. Or at least let that break into your stinking thinking because God's going to use this challenge to strengthen you. He's going to take this, and as you trust him through it, he's going to build you and strengthen you so that you're going to get stronger and stronger in your confidence in him, and what might cause you to stumble now won't cause you to stumble next week or month or year because of your greater strength. In verses 5 through 8, some, there's a kind of a sense of, hey, this, this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't add up. I should be able to understand this, and since I can't, something's out of whack. But here he says, look, we can't see the big picture that's where we have to ask God for help. Ask him for wisdom, and he gives generously. And then in verses 9 through 11, it, it seems to me there's kind of an underlying question. Some have it easier than me. Maybe God is showing some preference. People who are rich, they just seem to get a pass on all this stuff. Life just seems to, you know, float their boat, and everything is smooth and happy. 
But James, again, tackles that. He says, rich or poor, God shows no preference. He says, all flesh, no matter what your status in life, all flesh is as grass. And he is emphasizing that we need to continue to find our strength in him. And that is really going back to Isaiah chapter 40. If you haven't read Isaiah chapter 40, I encourage you to to read it today about God's greatness and how we can trust him. In verse 12, then, he kind of caps this off. The, The premise of this is that God loves us. But he says if we love God, then we endure and trust him will receive the crown of life. That's a great assurance. And then in verses 13 through 18, James dispels a huge doubt. And I think we've all been afflicted with this doubt from time to time. We may not put it in these words, but I'm going to be straightforward. There's this idea that maybe God's got it in for me. He's upset with me. He's trying to catch me now or punish me. And James says, that's not the case. God's not trying to defeat you. God is nothing but good, he says in verse 13 and 17. He says it's our desires, our cravings that lead us into trouble and eventually into death in verse 14 and 15. But notice what he contrasts with our desires our will. He says, but God's desire, God's will for us is life. He gave birth to us, verse 18, by the word of truth that we should become the prize of all of his creative efforts. We are his first fruits. That's the prized part of the harvest. It's that the first fruits that you show off to your friends. That's what God has for us. So as we think about the challenges that we have faced, perhaps that we've set aside today to come and worship the Lord, or the, and the ones that we'll have to pick back up again, maybe we'll do it in a refreshed way when we realize that God wants to use all of these, call them inconveniences, call them great difficulties, whatever you want to call it, God's using all these things in our life to strengthen our trust in him. And what does that do but prove his faithfulness? This is a coin from the era of Alexander the Great. When, God, uh, when Alexander the Great conquered the East, he actually passed through Palestine, and it's in this period of time that this coin, it's a part of a coin, it's less than half the size of a dime. And on one side of the coin is an ear. Kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Why would there be an ear on the side of a coin that was minted in Jerusalem, heart of Judea? Well, that coin reminds us. What's an ear remind us of? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And it's as the supreme profession of faith and trust and identification with God. 
Well, I thought that might be an interesting or meaningful way to kind of get our attention and realize that James has this same kind of thing in the back of his mind as he moves into verses 19 through 27. In fact, when we look at the passage, we see in verse 19, 21, 22, 25, all has to do with hearing and doing God's word. That's really the backbone of what he's talking about here. And so this morning as we read it, I want us to realize that God wants us to take his word to heart. And maybe these uh, uh, notations that I've put on the screen behind me will uh, help us to see the theme of what James is talking about as I read it to us now. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And rampant, I would translate uh, remaining. Uh, and I'll explain that a little bit more um, you'll find other translations kind of move in that, in that direction. Any leftover junk, yuckiness, um, wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Think about that. This implanted word has a transforming power. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, which deceives yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I find that I'm pretty surprised every time I look in the mirror and there's a beard. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or continues, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle or control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, faith works. That's what James is saying. And he's, in a way, uh, helping us to understand uh, the parameters or the boundaries or the definition of faith. And in fact, here, the thrust is faith takes God's word to heart. And in that sense, it's not just hearing, but it's doing, which is a constant uh, refrain of what he's talking about. And so we're going to see uh, in three ways that I think will help us remember uh, how faith takes God's word to heart. We receive it, we reflect it, and we represent it. In other words, 
we take God's word into our lives and it begins to work itself out in the choices and decisions and actions, attitudes of our life. And then we begin not only to reflect it, but we represent God's word in our lives. James talks a little bit differently than we're accustomed to if we're uh, uh, kind of bred on the Gospels and the writings of Paul. You remember James was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. And if you remember, uh, if, simply put, Christianity is born in Israel, you know, in Galilee and Judea and the church the heart of the church, the, the beginning of the church is in Jerusalem. And James becomes the, the leader of that church. You may recall from when we went through the book of Acts together, in chapter 7, Stephen is put to death. There's a great deal of reaction to the death of Jesus, the claims of the Christians that he's risen, this new life, this burgeoning church. And Stephen, representative of that, is, is persecuted. You could call it a form of state persecution in a sense because the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, had to be behind that. He's put to death. And standing there when Stephen is put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ is Paul the apostle. And that's believed to have taken place about three years after Jesus' death and resurrection. James, we believe if it's written early, could have been written within 10 years. He's writing, you may recall from verse 1, the tribes of the dispersed. Tribes is kind of a tip of the hat to the tribes of Israel, the nations, the, the states, if you will, the peoples of Israel, the families of Israel. So he's, what happened when we're told when Paul is standing there at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, this persecution scattered the church. And now James is writing to those Jewish Christians who fled into other regions of the Roman Empire. And he's writing to them to encourage them in their walk with Christ and in particular, then we see that in the everyday affairs, he wants them to really walk and live by faith. And this, he says, is a faith in God and the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, of which I am a slave. That's how he opens the letter. I'm a slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ means Messiah. He's the expected one. So this is a new age. This is a new, this is a new beginning. This is new history. And in fact, last week, as we do at the beginning of every month, we celebrated, we remember the Lord's Supper. And we take the bread and the cup. And what is the cup? It is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. That new covenant was expected by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, 
Moses even alludes to it in Deuteronomy 6, but in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 11, God is doing a new work. He's replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit within us. His word is implanted in us. And these notions are picked up by James right here, which is important for us to, uh, to understand. Because when he's writing to Jewish Christians, now he's talking about the law, which is really the gospel. And much of the New Testament hasn't even been written by the time James writes this letter. If Galatians is Paul's first letter, if that's his first letter, that's positioned about 80, 49. James could be in the mid-40s. So we're, we're hearing things that are belonging to the new Christian faith, exciting things that change the entire outlook. If you want to remember what it was like when Paul brought this message to the Jews, read his letter to the Romans, chapter 2, where he talks about how the Jews hear the word. They've got the law. They're hearers of the word, but they're not doers. They take great pride in having it. It makes them the unique people of God to have all this truth. But Paul says, you're not doing it. And the one thing that's built, the church is built on, the reason it grew, the reason it survived, is because we are doers of this truth. This truth isn't just to be treasured in our minds, it's to be treasured in all of our lives and find its way into all the practicalities of our experience because we are his new creation. And James brings this out here in his own way. Well, he begins the subject of receiving it. If we've got to take it to heart, we've got to receive it. And he starts with, with a proverbial saying. Right off the bat, he tells us that listening deters anger. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, he goes on to say human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That's the character of God. It does not match it, and it doesn't live up to it. It doesn't approach it. This, uh, while I was away, I thought a lot about this passage, and uh, I was uh, reminded that when God reveals himself to Moses, now this is before Moses has received the Ten Commandments, the, t the Ten Words. Moses says, let me, let me see you. I want to see you. Who doesn't want to see God? And God says, uh, okay, um, I'll walk past you, but I won't, you can't see me directly. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And then interestingly, and this happens in Exodus uh, 34, verses 6 and 7, when he passes by, we're not told what he sees, but what he hears. Isn't that interesting? He says, and he says his personal name, 
his personal name twice, we say the Lord, the Lord. Compassionate. Think about this now. The Lord, the Lord. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding. Thriving. Flourishing in steadfast love and truth. Isn't that interesting? Compassion, grace, or graciousness, slow to anger. I just want to submit to you, I'm, I'm just a point of application. I don't listen to people when I'm uh, not thinking about them, but thinking only about myself. One thing about compassion, it has the other person at heart. It's not all caught up in himself or herself. And grace, grace is a generosity. It's a willingness to favor. I don't know that James, uh, I just thought it was interesting. Quick lip compassion. If I've got extra to give, if I'm generous, I'm slow to speak, and I'm slow to anger. You know, it's interesting, the word listen, and this isn't only in English, it's not a Greek or Hebrew thing, but in, if you use the word silent, it's an anagram for listen, which means if you shuffle those same letters, you can spell listen. And that's what we need to do. We not, need not just to be silent. We need to listen. But what pushes that or motivates it is compassion. We were returning from vacation. We, we got in Wednesday night, um, and we were driving home after midnight from Fresno. Uh, we're pretty tired at that point. We've been traveling all day. And so uh, I'm driving out. Uh, I take the shortcut. I don't take the freeway. I cut across to 99. And I'm driving along there, and there's two lanes, and there was a guy in the fast lane who was going slower than the slow cars in the slow lane. So I thought, you know, going to do the right thing here. I'm just going to pass him on the right. And there was a truck in the slow lane coming up, so I had to get on it. And uh, Shelly said, John! <laughs> and I barked at her. I, I recall I said something like this. If he wants to poke along, fine. I'm just passing him. And then we were silent. <laughs> All the way to Visalia. <laughs> but see, I've thought about that a lot. Quick to listen. You know, anger has no room for compassion. 
no room for the uh, concerns of the other person. This is what we need to breed in our heart, is the character of God. See, anger, it, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't produce the character of God. Uh, even when God is angry, his anger is not the same as our, quite the same as our anger because of our sinful character. But the point I'm trying to make is that compassion, grace, slow to anger, steadfast love, truth, these are the characteristics of God. And that's, that's what the word is breeding in our hearts dynamically as we take it to heart. Notice in verse 21, James says, humbly receive, humbly accept, even welcome. It's the same word that if you were to welcome a stranger. I know uh, we've gotten a little bit better about this in our home, but in years past, you know, we didn't want to have anybody over unless the lawn was mowed and everything was tidied up and we put our best foot forward. And I know that... Uh, for many of us, you know, how our house looks is kind of an expression of that welcome as well as a reflection on who we are. But he almost uses the same kind of imagery. Um, I, I, the, the, the wording of the translations is, yeah, kind of scary when they say wickedness. Well, it's the word for kakos. It just, kaka in Greek. Yeah, kaka, just like in child's language. It's the same idea. It, morally, it can refer to anything that's, you know, shouldn't be. But he uses the word filth. Well, that's the same word that's used in chapter 2 of the poorly dressed man. He, his, his dress, his clothing is filthy. So he says, put that away. Just like Paul says, put off the old, take off the old person and put on the new one. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22, 23, and 24, James in his own way is saying, put that off. You know, writ, writ your house up and receive the word like a guest. Put away any leftover stuff that shouldn't be there. Okay. And welcome the Word of God. Weekly, uh, this isn't hard stuff. This is really simple. Sometimes, though, I think that um, we think that we have to be able to navigate the entire Bible to be a thriving, increasingly mature and wise Christian. Every week, uh, Jared and I get together and we read, uh, we spend about an hour, hour and a half reading out of the Word. And this last week, as uh, we were reading together, we brought up the subject that in the beginnings of the early church and throughout most of the history of early and, and into the um, Middle Ages, high incidence of illiteracy. People, on top of that, people didn't have even the old Bible, the Old Testament. Synagogues usually, if they had, they had one Torah, you know? So they had lectionary readings, excerpts, so that people could be fed. 
But because many couldn't read, and certainly no one or not everybody, only the exceptions could, could afford to have a copy because it all had to be handmade and making the, materi the materials were expensive. Uh, papyrus, the paper of the time, was, was brittle and, and failed and parchment was very, very costly. I hope you're getting the picture. You see, in the average church, that's why Paul says, see that this is read to the congregation. People heard the word. We have the Bible so readily available that we naturally, understandably take it for granted. We forget it's living and powerful, and we need to feed ourselves on it. No, every, we're tricked out by all the gadgetry and the new stuff, you know. Every, new is better, but see, in antiquity, old and older was better, more trustworthy. That which is first was best. So I want us to remember that even though we may not be able to navigate like a scholar in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and all of those things, what we hear, if we take it to heart and we apply it to our lives, we trust God through that and wait patiently on him and persist, he's going to do great things in our lives. You know, I wish every seat in this room was filled. I work so hard to try and say something that I know is really right before God and true to what James is saying. That doesn't matter to me as much as the fact that we are here and God wants to use you. That's what got me into ministry. I never anticipated going into the ministry. I just wanted to use God to use me right where I was at. But when he, you know, you and I allow him to use us right where we're at, trusting him, walking with him, growing in this faith, he takes you places. And it might just be Places right here in Visalia, places in your family, places in the lives of others, influence that we can have for Christ. Then he says we, we really need to reflect it. And here in verses uh, 22 through 25, in uh, 23 and 24, he uses the analogy of someone who looks in the mirror, goes away, and forgets what they look like. And you know, every time I look in the mirror, it's a revelation. So I'm really, you know, I'm identifying with James. I understand that. I can't remember what I look like. For one thing, I'm so much younger in my memory. <laughs> but what James is saying is that looking into and forgetting it should not be characteristic of the way we interact with the word. Because he says that's like someone who hears it, claps, and then goes away, and nothing more becomes of the word of God. So he's stressing to us that we've got to take risks of trust, steps of faith, 
to believe God in certain things, to let God use us in certain ways, to let God's word and attitude and heart change our attitude and heart, that we could become initiators of God's influence and presence wherever we are because we bring the attitude of God, the spirit of God, the potential of God, the hope of God, right? Does that seem strange to you? Isn't that what happens when we come to church or we spend time in his word? He lifts our spirits. He lifts our perspective. He raises our sights. He raises our hopes. He causes us to look beyond the rut, the mire, the difficulty. But see, what he wants us to do then is believe. Take that. Learn to channel it. It takes practice. Instead of letting the attitude of other people affect your attitude and bring you down. And doesn't that happen? How many of you spend time on social media and, you, and your blood pressure goes up and your anger level rises and your discouragement and your depression? What's going on with this world? All of a sudden, that's where we are. Out of the game, out of commission, wondering whether God's still in control. And then the neighbor needs help or a member of the family wants some time and we're spent, we're all drained out. But you see, the thing is, is that we can enter into those difficulties, into the lives of others and bring the fruit of faith, the power of the Holy Spirit, the difference that God makes in our lives when his word is alive in us. His truth is truth in us. We start to become dynamic, catalytic life changers wherever we are. And we grow in our ability to do that as we walk in faith. While I was on vacation, every Every day I'd make breakfast for Shelly, uh, make breakfast for us. And uh, so I, after, at that point in the morning, I'd turn on the news, and when the news is over, um, there was a show called uh, Steve Harvey. Any of you familiar with Steve Harvey? He's really quite good. Well, anyway, one morning he had a young lady that he featured this is a young woman who's intent on being the first woman to play in the National Football League. Um, yeah, everybody kind of, what? And then he says, she's already overcome cancer, sexual abuse, returned to school and earned a full college scholarship, and she's already playing free safety for the school football team. And he turned to her and she says, he says, do you have anything you'd like to say to the viewing audience? And she said, just these words. You can ask God for help. She looked right into the camera. You can ask God for help, but you've got to meet him halfway. 
Now, that kind of reminds me of that verse in the Bible, but it's not a verse. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. And we kind of poo-poo that. But that's what James is saying. God is speaking to us, but unless we listen and act, we definitely are not even meeting him halfway. Will you put your faith in God? If you will, you'll represent this truth, this reality. And the powerful thing when he, uh, I've already talked about the liberate, he calls it now, do the law. He elevates the gospel because law would bring to mind the Mosaic law, but he has in mind the gospel, the new covenant. That's why we call this the New Testament, because it's the new covenant. And why when we take the cup, we say, Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is, this is a whole new thing. And the resurrection means that the Spirit is poured out on us and we have this new life through our faith because that's how we walk with God. That's how we operate in the power of the Spirit based on this truth. And so he says we represent it if we really listen. A representative is an example, one who models this truth. And he, he talks about controlling the tongue. He says, if it's bona fide, you'll be able to control your tongue. Boy, that's a, that's a high bar, isn't it? But what if this week we took that on as just a litmus test or a little example of whether we're walking with God or he's in control, that he's the Lord and not me, is if I'm controlling my tongue. Watch the tongue. Submit the power of the tongue to the, the supreme power of the Lord. And then let it speak words of grace, compassion, love, goodness, wholesomeness, hope, future in the name of Jesus. And then he says, real religion will help the helpless, widows, orphans, and keep oneself unstained, not contaminated by the world. He kind of ends where he begins. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear. You'll be quicker to hear if the Lord's in control. Slow to speak. You'll be slower to speak if the Lord's in control. Slow to anger. It will deter anger if the Lord's in control. And so, yeah, faith works. It pays off with a little perspiration. We stand with me. I don't know what you're going through.
Sometimes everything can look quite normal and healthy on the surface. Um, I know in my own family, there's uh, in a corner of our family, uh, just some earth-shaking stuff going on. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do subscribe to what I preached this morning. Faith works. Because we have a faithful God. And as we trust Him, in measured ways, he'll make us a force of his grace and love in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the power of your life in ours through your spirit. We pray that in all of our feebleness, we might lean on you, depend on you, rely on you in ways that are a stretch for us this week that we might find your faithfulness invigorating, energizing as we live for you. In Jesus' name we praise you and all of God's people said, God bless you.